Chapter 62 of A Short History of the World by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 62 The New Overseas Empires of Steamship and Railway. The end of the 18th century was a period of disrupting empires and disillusioned expansionists. The long and tedious journey between Britain and Spain and their colonies in America prevented any real free coming and going between the homeland and the daughterlands, and so the colonies separated into new and distinct communities, with distinctive ideas and interests, and even modes of speech. As they grew, they strained more and more at the feeble and uncertain link of shipping that had joined them. Weak trading posts in the wilderness, like those of France and Canada, or trading establishments in great alien communities, like those of Britain in India, might well cling for bare existence to the nation which gave them support and a reason for their existence. That much, and no more, seemed to many thinkers in the early part of the nineteenth century to be the limit set to overseas rule. In 1820, the sketchy great European empires outside of Europe that had figured so bravely in the maps of the middle eighteenth century, had shrunk into very small dimensions. Only the Russian sprawled as large as ever across Asia. The British Empire in 1815 consisted of the thinly populated coastal river and lake regions of Canada, and a great hinterland of wilderness in which the only settlements as yet were the fur-trading stations of the Hudson Bay Company about a third of the Indian Peninsula, under the rule of the East India Company, the coast districts of the Cape of Good Hope, inhabited by blacks and rebellious-spirited Dutch settlers, a few trading stations on the coast of West Africa, the Rock of Gibraltar, the island of Malta, Jamaica, a few minor slave-labor possessions in the West Indies, British Guiana in South America, and on the other side of the world, two dumps for convicts at Botany Bay in Australia and in Tasmania. Spain retained Cuba and a few settlements in the Philippine Islands. Portugal had in Africa some vestiges of her ancient claims. Holland had various islands and possessions in the East Indies and Dutch Guyana, and Denmark an island or so in the West Indies. France had one or two West Indian islands and French Guiana. This seemed to be as much as the European powers needed, or were likely to acquire, of the rest of the world. Only the East India Company showed any spirit of expansion. While Europe was busy with the Napoleonic Wars, the East India Company, under a succession of governors-general, was playing much the same role in India that had been played before by Turkoman and such-like invaders from the north, and after the peace of Vienna it went on, levying its revenues, making wars, sending ambassadors to Asiatic powers. A quasi-independent state, however, with a marked disposition to send wealth westward. We cannot tell here in any detail how the British company made its way to supremacy, sometimes as the ally of this power, sometimes as that, and finally as the conqueror of all. Its power spread to Assam, Sindh, Oud. The map of India began to take on the outlines, familiar to the English schoolboy of today, a patchwork of native states, 
embraced and held together by the great provinces under direct British rule. In 1859, following upon a serious mutiny of the native troops in India, this empire of the East India Company was annexed to the British crown. By an act entitled An Act for the Better Government of India, the Governor-General became a viceroy representing the sovereign, and the place of the company was taken by a Secretary of State for India, responsible to the British Parliament. In 1877, Lord Beaconsfield, to complete the work, caused Queen Victoria to be proclaimed Empress of India. Upon these extraordinary lines, India and Britain are linked at the present time. India is still the empire of the Great Mogul, but the Great Mogul has been replaced by the Crown Republic of the Great Britain. India is an autocracy without an autocrat. Its rule combines the disadvantage of absolute monarchy with the impersonality and irresponsibility of democratic officialdom. The Indian, with a complaint to make, has no visible monarch to go to. His emperor is a golden symbol. He must circulate pamphlets in England, or inspire a question in the British House of Commons. The more occupied Parliament is with British affairs, the less attention India will receive, and the more she will be at the mercy of her small group of higher officials. Apart from India, there was no great expansion of any European empire, until the railways and the steamships were in effective action. A considerable school of political thinkers in Britain was disposed to regard overseas possessions as a source of weakness to the kingdom. The Australian settlements developed slowly until, in 1842, the discovery of valuable copper mines, and in 1851 of gold, gave them a new importance. Improvements on transport were also making Australian wool an increasingly marketable commodity in Europe. Canada, too, was not remarkably progressive until 1849. It was troubled by dissensions between its French and British inhabitants. There were several serious revolts, and it was only in 1867 that the new constitution, creating a federal dominion of Canada, relieved its internal strains. It was the railway that altered the Canadian outlook. It enabled Canada, just as it enabled the United States, to expand westward, to market its corn and other produce in Europe, and in spite of its swift and extensive growth, to remain in language and sympathy and interest one community. The railway, the steamship and the telegraph cable were indeed changing all the conditions of colonial development. Before 1840, English settlements had already begun in New Zealand, and a New Zealand land company had been formed to exploit the possibilities of the island. In 1840, New Zealand also was added to the colonial possessions of the British Crown. Canada, as we have noted, was the first of the British possessions to respond richly to the new economic possibilities that the new methods of transport were opening. Presently, the republics of South America, and particularly the Argentine Republic, began to feel, in their cattle trade and coffee growing, the increased nearness of the European market. Hitherto, the chief commodities that had attracted the European powers into unsettled and barbaric regions 
had been gold or other metals, spices, ivory, or slaves. But in the latter quarter of the 19th century, the increase of the European populations was obliging their governments to look abroad for staple foods, and the growth of scientific industrialism was creating a demand for new raw materials, fats and greases of every kind, rubber, and other hitherto disregarded substances. It was plain that Great Britain and Holland and Portugal were reaping a great and growing commercial advantage from their very considerable control of tropical and subtropical products. After 1871, Germany, and presently France and later Italy, began to look for unannexed raw material areas, or for oriental countries capable of profitable modernization. So began a fresh scramble all over the world, except in the American region, where the Monroe Doctrine now barred such adventures for politically unprotected lands. Close to Europe was the continent of Africa, full of vaguely known possibilities. In 1850 it was a continent of black mystery. Only Egypt and the coast were known. Here we have no space to tell the amazing story of the explorers and adventurers who first pierced the African darkness, and of the political agents, administrators, traders, settlers, and scientific men who followed in their track. Wonderful races of men like the pygmies, strange beasts like the okapi, marvelous fruits and flowers and insects, terrible diseases, astounding scenery of forest and mountain, enormous inland seas and gigantic rivers and cascades were revealed, a whole new world. Even remains at Zimbabwe of some unrecorded and vanished civilization, the southward enterprise of an early people, were discovered. Into this new world came the Europeans, and found the rifle already there in the hands of the Arab slave traders, and Negro life in disorder. By 1900, in half a century, all Africa was mapped, explored, estimated, and divided between the European powers. Little heed was given to the welfare of the natives in this scramble. The Arab slaver was indeed curbed, rather than expelled, but the greed for rubber, which was a wild product collected, under compulsion by the natives in the Belgian Congo, agreed, exacerbated by the clash of inexperienced European administrators with the native population, led to horrible atrocities. No European power has perfectly clean hands in this matter. We cannot tell here in any detail how Great Britain got possession of Egypt in 1883, and remained there, in spite of the fact that Egypt was technically a part of the Turkish Empire, nor how nearly the scramble led to war between France and Great Britain in 1898, when a certain colonel marchant, crossing Central Africa from the west coast, tried at Fashoda to seize the Upper Nile. Nor can we tell how the British government first led the Boers, or Dutch settlers, of the Orange River district, and the Transvaal set up independent republics in the inland parts of South Africa, and then repented and annexed the Transvaal Republic in 1877, nor how the Transvaal Boers fought for freedom and won it after the Battle of Majuba Hill, 1881. 
Majuba Hill was made to rankle in the memory of the English people by a persistent press campaign. A war with both republics broke out in 1899, a three years' war enormously costly to the British people, which ended at last in the surrender of the two republics. Their period of subjugation was a brief one. In 1907, after the downfall of the imperialist government, which had conquered them, the liberals took the South African problem in hand, and these former republics became free and fairly willing associates with Cape Colony and Natal in a confederation of all the states of South Africa, as one self-governing republic under the British crown. In a quarter of a century, the partition of Africa was completed. There remained and annexed three comparatively small countries, Liberia, a settlement of liberated Negro slaves on the west coast, Morocco, under a Muslim sultan, and Abyssinia, a barbaric country with an ancient and peculiar form of Christianity, which had successfully maintained its independence against Italy at the Battle of Adowa in 1896. End of chapter 62